Glad you're here. Uh, well, I, 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 I need to backtrack for a minute. I should have known better than uh, to introduce my message uh, last time I preached by bringing uh, an NFL football up on stage. Because I want to go on record today. I, I want to speak very clearly and plainly. That ball was not underinflated. <laughs> I just felt like that needed. And I'm not answering any more questions about that Sunday sermon. Um, okay, so we're moving on. And we're in a series. Uh, I love my church. We're talking about the church. And today we're talking about, about those two very significant symbols, ordinances that were given to us by Christ. And we will share experientially in the celebration of one in, in just a moment. Uh, does anybody know, like uh, we're in just a few weeks, February the 16th comes up. Um, does anybody know the significance of February the 16th to Willowbend Church? Does anybody remember what that, that day is so significant about? I thought so. thought I might need to remind you. That's our anniversary. This church is, uh, on February the 16th, 165 years old. Um, there is a, uh, there's a Texas historical marker uh, on the front uh, out where, that, where the youth meet, um, at, right underneath that oak tree, if you ever want to walk out there and just, and just take a look. Um, and so we're coming up on an anniversary. Now, I, I'm remiss because we missed an anniversary, and I'm going to backtrack uh, and with asking for forgiveness. But did y'all, did y'all know that, that middle of January, I think the 15th, was the one-year anniversary of Chad and Ryan Bailey with Willowbend Church? And um, yeah, and uh, you know, time flies when you're having fun. And, and I would tell you, I'm having fun. I really enjoy watching what God does uh, in and through their lives here at Willowbend, not just on Sunday morning, but through the week, the investment that they're making in lives and relationships. And, and, and with our staff, uh, it's really been so fun this last year for me personally. And so I'm very happy uh, to just to, uh, I'm sorry I forgot that last time. God forgive me. Okay. They're quick to forgive. That's, you know, that's a good thing. Um, now, let me just tell you the story because um, a little over five years ago, there, um, there was this elderly woman uh, from an old family, an old Plano family that died, and she had never married, and she lived alone to her dying day. And, it, and, um, um, and we got this phone call from her great niece who in cleaning out her house found in the very back of one of her closets two old yellowed cardboard boxes which we didn't know about. Now it turns out the backstory on this lady is that she had been a church secretary at Willowbend for a number of years until they hired this upstart young preacher that she just never took a liking to, okay? And, uh, and, and, her, and that just began to build up in her. And then one day in a huff, she quit her job as secretary and she cleaned out her office. Now, she didn't just take the pencils and the erasers. She took these two old 
boxes that contained all of the historical archives of Willowbend Church. And they stayed in the bottom of her closet for we don't know how long until this niece brought them back to us only five years ago. And we realized that we had missed our 150th anniversary. And so almost immediately we put together a celebration for the 160th. And some of you were here. And, uh, and we had a big reunion. There were a bunch of old former, former members that came back because we announced it across the, you know, across the community. And we had a, we had a service together and we had a, a big barbecue outside. Do you remember? A lot of fun. But one of the things that we found in that archive that I thought was a, a beautiful memory and a treasure for us was an old grainy photo probably taken around 1875 to 1880 of a baptism in White Rock Creek, just right there where today is the Glen Eagles golf course, right? And, uh, and so uh, what that said to us is right simple, is that for 165 years, this church has been celebrating in these very significant ways that Christ showed us baptism representing the transformation of our life, the dying of self and the rising in new life in him. You know, we've been celebrating that and and this church has been celebrating communion for 165 years. And the church of Jesus Christ has been celebrating those things for over 2,000 years and and perhaps it would be a good thing for us just to talk about why let's look at what's that what that's about if you would turn with me um, turn with me to to Matthew's gospel in chapter 3 and uh, and and we will begin there um, in verse 1 Okay, now let me set this text up. Now, Jesus turns 30 years of age, okay? Um, And according to Jewish religious practice, to the custom, rabbinical ministry could not commence until one was 30 years of age. And so Jesus has just turned 30. He closes up the carpenter shop. He doesn't pack a lunch or a bedroll. He kisses Mary, uh, his mom, and hugs her as he walks out the door. And he goes where? Where's the first place that he goes? What's the first real act of his rabbinical ministry, even before he ever calls a disciple or a follower or a pupil? The first thing he does is recorded here. He goes to find his cousin John, who has been preaching in the wilderness at the Jordan River, out in the Jordan River Valley. And here's how John is described. And in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight, make his path straight. Now, John, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, much like like Elijah in the Old Testament. His food was locust and wild honey. 
then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of the region about Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now he gets into it, you know, with the, the Pharisees there for a minute, but then go on to, to verse 11 where he explains what he's doing. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy even to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. And John hasn't any sooner finished the sentence when who shows up? And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Here's the first official act of his rabbinical ministry. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now. For thus it is, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he that is John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately up went, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. They were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now we, we read it in its context here so that you could hear some very important words and important concepts. John's baptism, we are told, is for repentance. The word repentance, metanoia, in, in the Greek, it means, to, it means that we change our minds. There's a, it, there's a 180 shift here in our mind. And then there's coupled with that confession or acknowledgement of sin. But when Jesus comes to John, John sees no need for Jesus to repent, no need for confession of sin. In fact, he says, I should not be baptizing you. It's you that should be baptizing me. And so if Jesus was not baptized for repentance and with confession, why was he baptized? Well, let me give you two very strong reasons. Just two, there are probably more. First is this, he did it out of obedience. He says to John, let it be for now that I might fulfill all righteousness because he understood this was the will of God for him. And he, and he in his ministry, his rabbinical ministry, would submit everything to the Father and the Father's leadership. So it was out of obedience to the Father that he came into the water of baptism. And secondly, it was so that he could identify himself with the very ones whose broken and sinful lives he came to save. The people. He, ad he identified himself with us. We 
sinners. And so it is, if this was the first thing that he did, that, and he did that in, in a, right before us, and his disciples thereafter were baptized following his lead, then baptism in Scripture is viewed as the first obedience in the life of a Christ follower. The first thing that we would want to do. Remember the Great Commission? Put the Great Commission up there on the screen, would you? You got it? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here you go. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. There's the mission of the church. Baptism is seen as the first you know, of obediences when we become a follower of Christ. And secondly, baptism is the way that we identify ourselves with him. As he identified himself with us as sinners, we identify ourselves with him as our Savior. We come in repentance. We come in acknowledgement of our sin, our need for Savior, and we identify ourselves and say, He is the one. He is the one and the only one who saves. And that's based on what? Okay, that's based on what's in verses 11 and 12. Let's go back and read 11 and 12 again. Listen, listen. I'm saying, because we at Willowbend Church, we don't practice baptism as a sacrament. Baptism saves no one. It is not a work that contributes anything to salvation. Salvation is Jesus' finished work for us. Salvation is not sacrament. It is symbol. It is a symbol of what has already transpired in the life of the believer. Listen to verse 11. I baptize. Here's the real baptism. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And he he will baptize you, what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. Now the word baptize the Greek word is baptizo. I mean, we just lift the word right out of the Greek language and, and, and made it an English word to represent what we do. The word baptize literally means what? It means to immerse. And what John is saying is, I immerse you in water for repentance. When he comes, when he comes, Messiah comes, he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, into his storehouse. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. See, there are two symbols that accompany this idea of the, the, the immersion of the Holy Spirit. Fire and a fork. There's fire and then there's a winnowing fork. Let's talk about what those mean. Those are fairly simple metaphors for someone living at the time of Jesus. Do you understand that? If you consider when they lived in a day before electricity, fire represented to them three things. Let's just, let's just mention them, okay? First of all, fire was the source of illumination for them. It was a source of illumination. The flame that lights our darkness and we are drawn 
to it. We are guided into truth and understanding. We are illumined by that, that flame. The light, John is saying, will come for us and we will understand what God is doing. Jesus is the light of the world. He will illumine the mind and the heart and reveal himself as the truth. So the, the fire represents in their, in their thoughts illumination. Fire brings clarity and understanding Illumination. It also brings warmth. It's the second thing, warmth. John Wesley. John Wesley confessed to his, to his dear friend Peter Bowler, a Moravian friend, his growing misery, his depression, his disillusionment, that his, that his soul was in inner turmoil, coupled with the fact that he had made the decision once and for all to quit the ministry. His friend Peter counseled him in this way. Preach faith until you have it, John. Preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, then you will preach faith. So Wesley kept preaching and he struggled for months. Then listen to this account of his journey. On this day, May the 24th of 1738, he opened his Bible at about 5 a.m. in the morning and he came across these words. There are given to us, there are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers of the divine nature. Those words in scripture echoed in his mind through the day. That evening, he reluctantly decided to attend a meeting at Aldersgate. At about 8.45 p.m., now these are John Wesley's own words written in his own journal. While he, <clears throat> these are his own words. While he, that is the preacher... That night at Aldersgate was describing the change. Having read from Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans. The change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ. And in Christ alone for salvation. And then he writes. An assurance was given to me. So that he had taken away all of my sin. Even mine. And had saved me from the law of sin and death. That experience was transformational for John Wesley. I sensed my heart strangely warmed with the fire with which he immerses us. There is a warmth that comes. There is a, an intimacy, a closeness, the establishment of a, a relationship, an assurance of heart 
that comes. John Wesley, you know, his heart now set on fire. His tongue was also set ablaze. And as you know, perhaps you know, he rode an average of 20,000 miles a year on a horse to preach the gospel the rest of his days. Strangely warmed. So the fire represents for us illumination, a, a clarity of, of, of mind that we come to understand. And, and our hearts are warmed. We are drawn to, the, to his warmth. And there is something that happens internally in us that warms and kindles the heart toward him. And thirdly, there's purification. There's cleansing. There, there's a purifying flame and that involves destruction. The flame must... The flame must Burn away what is false, what is impure, to leave only what is true and what is pure. And, and so in the same way, the flame tempers and strengthens, the same way that it tempers and it strengthens metal, Christ comes into the heart and the evil dross is purged and, and taken away. That's his commitment to us to forge his character and his likeness in us and sometimes it's painful to be cleansed and to be purified to be tested at times even by fire the fire of his love but you see do you see in those symbols the holy spirit brings illumination the holy spirit kindles the heart draws the heart in woos the heart to christ and then begins the act or the work of purification in us. And what baptism is to symbolize is that that work has already begun in us. Baptism won't cleanse us. But the work of the Holy Spirit in us will begin to, to bring to the surface whatever in our life is, you know, is, is lacks the beauty and the purity that brings honor to him. As he instructs and teaches and guides in our lives. That's the flame. The fire. And then there's the, the metaphor of the, the fork. The winnowing fork. This one's difficult. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. Now there's no doubt. Listen. No, no doubt to the pronouns here. Who owns everything in the analogy. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, the barn, the storehouse. But the chaff will be burned up, thrown in an unquenchable fire. <clears throat> Did it just get a little hotter in here? What's the picture? It's a picture that comes with promise, but also with a warning. The coming of Jesus. John is saying the coming of Messiah involves separation. We must make a choice. We must decide what we will do with him. Will we accept him or will we reject him? And that choice will determine our destiny. That's what John is saying. The threshing floor. Is always a place on higher ground. 
in that day in which the, the grain, after it has been milled, is taken up and thrown into the air so that the, the, the constant winds blowing across that flat surface will blow the chaff to one side and the grain, what is true and real, will drop to the threshing floor to be gathered up for the storehouse. But what do they do with the chaff? It's kindling for fire. And so John leaves us with this simple question. What is your decision about Christ? What do you decide? There's a forced forced choice here. Uncomfortable as that may seem. Baptism, you see, baptism is the symbol of, you know, of of what has taken place in our lives through the immersion of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of his spirit on us. You know, we are illumined. We are, our hearts are kindled and warm to him and, and we are being pure. We begin that, that process of being purified and set apart. And, and that's not for ourselves. That's not so we'll look good folks, right? We are purified. We are cleansed and purified so that we can be put into his service so that we can, we can honor him with our lives and we can complete and do whatever purpose it is that he has for our lives. It's not purification. It's not for us. It's for him so that he can use us in his world. And so Baptism reflects a choice that has been made. See, to entrust our lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord, recognizing how incredibly important that choice is. Now, there's an illustration. There are many, but here's one from Acts chapter 8. You may remember this story of Philip's encounter with an Ethiopian Uh, It's found in chapter 8 of Acts. If you'll turn there, uh, the words will be on the screen, you know, for us. What I want you just to watch for is for that process of illumination, you know, of, of, of how this Ethiopian is illumined and then drawn, you know, by the gospel into relationship with Christ. I'm just saying and, and, until that point at which he recognizes his need to, you know, saying to, to be baptized. And so there was an angel of the Lord who spoke to Philip, who was one of the disciples, one of the early deacons in the church. And the angel said, get up and go south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then he has the parentheses, this is a desert road. I mean, there's nothing out there. And so he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. And he comes to worship. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. He was sitting in his chariot on his and in his chariot. He was on his way home, home, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah out loud. And that's what they commonly did. They read out loud in that day. And the Spirit told Philip, "Go and join that chariot." And uh, uh, Stephen Garris' uh, commentary points out that the Greek there is the word "go and glue yourself to that chariot." Philip, it's a very interesting word verb there. Glue yourself to that chariot. So when Philip began to run alongside that chariot, Philip ran up, and as he's running alongside that chariot, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like sheep to the slaughter, 
as a lamb is silent before its shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who would describe this generation for his life? Who, would, who, would, who will describe his generation for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or another person? And so Philip proceeded to tell him the good news, the gospel about Jesus, beginning with that very scripture. You can start anywhere in scripture, it all leads to Jesus, right? And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. We don't have time. I'm going to run out of time to unpack this. But here's the, there are a series of questions there leading to this man's illumination. And then there's a decision, a choice to believe in Jesus. And then the eunuch asks the question, and this is the question you should ask yourself, what keeps me from being baptized, he said. What's keeping you from being baptized? If you haven't, embrace that symbol which has been practiced in the church for over 2,000 years. What keeps you from being baptized, if you haven't? Perhaps it is you've not experienced the illumination of the Spirit, you know, the, the warmth of the, of the Spirit entering into your life and the, pure, the, the acts of purification, you know, the, the cleansing, you know, that comes with repentance and acknowledgement of sin in your life. Perhaps that's it. But there may be something else. This is really simple obedience, folks. It's really simple obedience, is it not? I love what Stephen Keller says. Stephen Keller says, the minute you start pondering and contemplating and analyzing what obedience looks like, you're being disobedient. (laughs) Because you just put your, you've just inserted yourself back in. You're not listening to what God's calling you to do, what he's instructing you to do, you know, what his, what he's commanding you to do. You're analyzing it. You're you know, you're rationalizing it. You're, you're getting back involved in the process when you ought to simply obey what you hear him say to yourself. So let's, let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts today. Thank you for these incredibly wonderful symbols that you've given us uh, as your church. And we love to celebrate them. We love to mark them. Baptism, because it, it marks the life. Um, it speaks of the interchange that has already begun. It's the believer's way of saying and acknowledging in repentance their need for a Savior and identifying themselves with your dear Son. This table that we we come to now symbolizes the finished work of your Son for us that which we could never add to. But as we come solemnly today, 
with grateful hearts, we pray. You will continue to illumine our hearts and warm our hearts. And even in this moment, as we ponder and we reflect before you, that you might even purge our hearts. You might even cleanse and renew our hearts as we celebrate your supper. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, Deb and I took the kids to Washington, D.C., and uh, for a tour, uh, that morning we started out at the Lincoln Memorial. I love those two inaugural, uh, the inaugural address, the second inaugural address. I love the Gettysburg address that are there. They are so classic. Deb always uses that to remind me to preach shorter sermons. Um, but that's where we started. And then by about 11 o'clock, we, were, we found ourselves standing in front of these, this huge black granite monument. You know, and uh, where name after name is carefully engraved, one after another, in chronological order of year, 58,256 names. Vietnam soldiers. People were coming there even while we were there and they were leaving flowers, but they were leaving other items as well. One man left his dog tags and a headband and a picture. I leave you my headband, which contains my sweat from the war and my dog tags. And I leave a picture of us, you and I, Mike, from another time and another place. I will never forget you. It was a small American flag and written on the bottom of the flag was may all of you who died, all of you still missing and all of you who returned home never be forgotten. It was a very, very moving experience for us to be at that memorial. We went from there to the Smithsonian Institute. And there at the Smithsonian, they had in a large glass case um, items that had been left at the Vietnam Memorial Wall those first years that it was opened. My daughter, Jill, was 18 years of age. She wasn't, obviously wasn't born when that war was being fought. When I was 18 and in high school, I was 1A and participated in the very first draft lottery along with all of my friends. And so those memories of Vietnam days are very vivid to me. But I watched my daughter sink down first on her knees in front of that big glass case and Jill stayed for over an hour with her legs crossed, just sliding herself a few inches at a time until she had read almost all of the notes and looked at all of the artifacts that had been left. I'd have to tell you, I was more moved by that, by watching my daughter take that in 
than almost anything. You know, one commentator writes about that wall. They simply call it the wall. It's a place of remembering. It's a place of healing. Instead of dividing and separating a country as the war in Vietnam once did, now we meet there. We meet there, past and present. A nation that once turned its back now pauses there to embrace all who sacrificed for it. It's important to remember, isn't it? That's why we do this. Christian, this is our wall. This is our wall. The difference between our wall and that wall is there's only one name engraved in it. The name Jesus Christ. We sang it a few moments ago. Your name and my name is written on his heart. Your name, my name is engraved upon his hands. This is our wall. Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I must suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given up, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, there were four glasses of wine that were part of the Passover ceremony. After they had eaten, which means after they had eaten of every bit of the Passover lamb and the bitter herbs, you know, and the vegetables served with it. After they had eaten, he took the third cup, which is the cup of redemption on the table And he reinterpreted that for us for all time, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate today. We have some folks that are going to come in just a moment and going to serve us. They'll be standing at the heads of each of these aisles. You can come and receive a small cup and a piece of bread. Don't eat it here at the altar. Take it back to your seat once you receive it. And then sit prayerfully and quietly in reflection and in prayer, preparing your heart for us together all at once to celebrate and share communion.
together. You understand what we're going to do? You'll leave out the right side just for traffic flow, out the right side of your aisle, you know, and then circle back into the left side of whatever section that you're seated in. Need to give you that instruction. Need to let you know that we at Willowbend Church, here's how we practice it. We practice an open communion. This is a communion for all whose hearts have been illumined by Christ, warmed and kindled by His love, and whose hearts and lives have been purified. Purified by His very presence in their lives. So we sell as a symbol and a remembrance of what his death means to us. We come to this table, okay? Okay, so let's stand together. Would our servers please come forward?